Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, February 1st, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Happy Black History Month, sharing some thoughts from Langston Hughes and questioning what makes someone a hero in our history books. Plus, the discovery of a new blue pigment and all the Mars news for February. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Today is the first day of Black History Month here in the U.S. Founded in 1926 by father of Black History Carter G. Woodson, it was originally just one week and was founded specifically with schools in mind. As an academic, Woodson was well aware of how little Black History was taught in schools, so the idea was to have one week intentionally chosen to coincide with Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln's birthdays, in which schools focused more on Black History and the inequities faced by black Americans. In 1970, black students and staff at Kent State University expanded the week into Black History Month, which grew in popularity over the years, eventually being recognized federally by President Gerald Ford. Now, right around the time that Carter Woodson was leaving his mark on black history by ensuring it would be recognized and celebrated for generations to come, as it should be, another figure was getting his start on a career that would be much more lauded after his death than in his life, when he was often written off by peers and critics. And that man was poet, novelist, and playwright Langston Hughes, who would have turned 119 today. A central figure in the Harlem Renaissance, Hughes is considered one of the fathers of jazz poetry, a style of poetry that incorporates some of the rhythm and improv of jazz and often features jazz-adjacent topics. It also became one of the foundational influences of hip-hop. Writing on her Brain Pickings site, Maria Popova said, quote, Today, Hughes stands as one of the most beautiful, beloved, and important American voices of the past century, perched in time and thought partway between Walt Whitman and Ta-Nehisi Coates. His poems continue to speak to the problems and possibilities of his nation, making insistent room for responsibility and redemption in equal measure. To those of us who came to America from the outside, they offer an unparalleled framework for understanding the deep traumas and old scars of this country, which we are now inheriting and are equally tasked with healing. End quote. And to that end, Popova shared a reading from Hughes of one of his own poems called American Heartbreak. In the original, he wrote, I am the American heartbreak, but in this reading, conducted for the BBC a few years before he passed away, he changed it to, we are the American heartbreak. And after the poem, he shares some of his reflections on the piece and why he wrote it. And this reading is from a larger collection that compiles the BBC session recordings called Langston Hughes Reads Langston Hughes. Here's an excerpt. We are the American heartbreak. The rock on which freedom stubbed its toe. The great mistake that Jamestown made long ago. That is one of my poems about the problems of the Negro people in relation to American democracy. Perhaps we should say the problems of American democracy in relation to the Negro people. Because for some reason the Negro in America has always been called a problem. Well, I guess we are. Many of my poems try to capture various aspects of this problem. I've written poems about housing. For example, when Negroes move into some American communities, even if it's just one Negro family moving into a block, within a few days, signs begin to go up 
for sale. And usually the real estate brokers who handle the sales double the prices on those houses because they know that Negro people often have a hard time buying decent homes. And so they charge them more for the homes that eventually they are willing to sell them. Well, I try to put these things, these problems into poetry. The whole album is available on Spotify or for purchase. I'll put a link in the show notes to an open culture post with links to listen and which also offers a little bit more context about the recordings and Hughes's poetry at large. As we consider great black artists like Langston Hughes and other black historical figures this month or any month, journalist Imani Perry urges us to think critically about the type of myth-making that gets shrouded on people we claim as heroes, especially in America and in even more complicated ways for black Americans. Writing for the New York Times in the first piece in a new series called Black History Continued, Perry said, quote, Heroes, as historians and activists have noted for generations, are often made mythic in ways that are troubling. Social change is never wrought by individuals. Movement is a collective endeavor, and the romantic ideal of the hero obscures that truth. Recent social movements like the Movement for Black Lives have been deliberate about describing themselves as leaderless, or leaderful, in order to emphasize the importance of collective organizing while rejecting the model of the charismatic male leader. The decision to choose leaderless or leaderful models is a refutation of the ideal of the traditional hero, martial, dominant, and authoritarian in style, if not substance. It also recognizes the ways in which so many important figures have been excluded from being cast as heroes because they don't fit the standard image, whether because of queerness, gender nonconformity, femininity, or mental or physical disability. The practice of overlooking these heroic people is ironic, given that navigating disadvantage often requires heroic labors. And though a few such outsiders make it into the annals, generally it is only if they are seen as transcending their very human qualities. The traditionally constrained ideal of the black hero is a challenge both within black communities and in the society at large. These lauded individuals are anointed as proxies for all black people and interpreters of black thought, which flattens the widely divergent ideas among black people about the political economy, social values, theology, racism, law, and so forth. Groundbreaking figures like Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, President Barack Obama, and Vice President Kamala Harris are subject to intense political debate, both within black communities and without, over their ideologies, their roles in American policy, and their relationship to communities of color even as we recognize the significance of being a trailblazing first of such consequence. No one person can tell the whole story, no matter how heroic that person might be. End quote. Though Perry does note, heroes still play an important role in how we humans both learn and find inspiration in difficult times. But continuing to expand both who qualifies as a hero and how we define it, or at least how much humanity we allow our heroes to have, is an important practice. And while part of Carter G. Woodson's driving force in establishing a week to acknowledge and celebrate black history was so that black kids could learn their history and see themselves represented, it has also always held the purpose of making sure whites and other non-black folks also learn about and celebrate black lives and culture. And it's a time for us to dig into our preconceived ideas and biases, including questions like what makes a hero? And who gets to hold the mantle of hero and who doesn't? And who gets to make that decision? 
And continuing along the theme of challenging our assumptions and learning more about our history, no matter how difficult it is to hear, today is also National Freedom Day, marking the approval of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. And to honor the day, I recommend a screening of the Netflix documentary 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay which focuses on the history of racial injustice in America, specifically through the lens of mass incarceration and the direct line that can be drawn from the signing of the 13th Amendment to today's prison industrial complex. It is an incredible film and definitely worth rewatching, even if you've seen it before. You may remember several years ago hearing about a new blue pigment that was discovered on accident by scientists at Oregon State University. Well, now the pigment, Yinmin Blue, is finally approved by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and commercially available, although a bit hard to come by authentically. So back in 2009, a team of material scientists at OSU, led by Mass Subramanian, were given a grant to experiment with rare elements with the hopes of finding new materials to use in producing electronics. But when they mixed atrium oxide, which is white, indium oxide, which is yellow, and manganese oxide, which is black, in the furnace at about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, they were left with a brilliant blue sample. And stumped them at first, but after retesting it, they realized they had discovered a new pigment and quickly sought to patent it. The discovery of a new blue pigment is especially remarkable because, quoting Smithsonian Magazine, People around the world have gravitated toward blue, which was the first man-made pigment for millennia. Given the difficulty of extracting blue from natural sources, artists throughout history have had to create synthetic blue pigments. Prior to Yinmin Blue, the last commercially manufactured inorganic blue pigment was cobalt, which was discovered in 1802 and first produced in France in 1807. Cobalt is poisonous if consumed in large quantities. It doesn't reflect heat well and tends to fade over time. End quote. But now this new yin-min pigment reflects heat and absorbs radiation. It's more durable than cobalt and extremely stable. Even when mixed with oil and water, the brilliance of the blue pigment doesn't fade. Given how incredibly durable it is, the pigment was first improved for industrial use for coatings and plastics, and according to Smithsonian Magazine, it is a favored environmentally conscious choice for buildings because of the pigment's ability to reflect most infrared radiation, which means that the pigment itself and the building it's coated on can stay cool. The pigment appears as a middle ground between cobalt blue and ultramarine, which many artists say fills a gap in the spectrum. And even before it was approved for commercial use, Yin Min was accepted as a Crayola color named Blutiful. And this is also how I learned that Crayola's website has character profiles for some of their crayon colors. The Blutiful crayon is named Bia, and her hobbies include coding apps, video games, and DIY projects. The more you know. Anyways, the team who discovered Yin Min Blue have now been producing other pigments, including bright oranges and various shades of purple, turquoise, and green, but, quoting Hyperallergic, they continue to search for a new, stable, heat-reflecting, and brilliant red, calling it the most elusive color to synthesize. End quote.
February is going to be a big month on Mars with three different spacecraft arriving at Mars this month. I have just one main question. Who is responsible for this timing when the month literally sharing the same namesake as the planet was just a few weeks away? Clearly, this big Mars Fest should be happening in March. But you know, these international space agencies just never listen to me. So anyways, on February 9th, United Arab Emirates' HOPE spacecraft will be entering Mars's orbit, quoting Wired. The UAE is the only country that will not attempt a soft landing during the February Mars invasion. Instead, its HOPE orbiter will study the Martian atmosphere from more than 12,000 miles above the surface. Planetary scientists hope that the UAE's robo-meteorologist will fill in gaps in our understanding of the Martian climate and help validate environmental data captured by rovers and landers on the ground. End quote. And then, less than a day later, China's Tianwen-1's rover-come-lander-come-orbiter will join HOPE in orbit and shortly thereafter touch down on the planet's surface itself. Quoting again, Once it has safely touched down, the six-wheeled rover will detach itself from the lander and spend the next three months exploring its landing site, Utopia Planitia, the planet's largest impact crater. The rover and lander will both relay data from the surface to the Tianwen-1 orbiter, which will send it back to Earth. Although the Chinese National Space Administration hasn't provided a lot of details about the exact scientific goals of its mission, a paper about it published last year in Nature Astronomy says the agency's goal is to perform a global and extensive survey of the entire planet. End quote. And if Tianwen-1 successfully lands, China will become the only nation other than the U.S. to deploy a rover on Mars. And then, on February 18th, NASA's Perseverance rover is due to touch down on Jezero Crater. What makes this different than the Curiosity rover's landing back in 2012 is the sheer amount of audio-visual equipment packed onto Perseverance. Quoting Lori Glaze, the head of the Planetary Science Division of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, we're going to be able to watch ourselves land for the first time on another planet. End quote. But don't get too excited because we aren't going to be able to watch it in real time. The data relay on Perseverance is, as CNET says, slower than old dial-up speeds. But after landing, the rover will be able to send some images and audio back to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. We'll get more and more as the days go on, hopefully have a couple of images on the day. But we will hopefully eventually get the full experience of the landing process. And also on the day, there will be a live feed of mission control at NASA so we can watch the excitement in the room as it's all happening. And it will be a thrilling few minutes, because the entry, descent, and landing, or EDL phase, is critical. And on Mars, where only about 40% of missions sent there have been successful, NASA refers to the EDL as seven minutes of terror. Here's what will happen if all goes well, quoting CNET. Perseverance will hit the Martian atmosphere, traveling at almost 12,000 miles per hour, or 19,312 kilometers per hour, streaking across the sky as it begins to slow down. A 70-foot or 21-meter diameter parachute will deploy to slow it further. Afterward, its heat shield is released and radar is activated to help it determine its own location. At an altitude of about one mile, or one and a half kilometers, the descent module fires its engines and a new Terrain Relative Navigation System, or TRN, kicks in to identify a safe landing spot. 
TRN is basically a sort of computer vision that allows the spacecraft to look at the terrain below and match it up with maps in its database. The system slows down to a literal crawl, and then it's time for Skycrane, the same sort of hovering landing system the Curiosity rover used, which will allow Perseverance to basically lower itself softly to the surface. This whole process will be fully automated without any input from mission control because of the delay in sending radio signals back and forth from Mars to the Earth." End quote. And if everything goes well with nothing damaged on landing, Perseverance will also get to deploy Ingenuity, a small helicopter packed in its belly. Ingenuity will help explore more parts of the planet, contributing to some of the larger goals like searching for signs of microbial life in Mars's past. You can watch Perseverance's landing live on NASA TV starting at 11.15 a.m. Pacific on Thursday the 18th. Touchdown is expected to happen around 12.30 p.m. Pacific. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go launch a new absurdist percussion comedy group called Yinmin Group. I hope you are having a great start to your week. I will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>